please be seated. Well, so far in our series, we've seen that God's creation was abundant, revealing the fundamental truth that God is abundant. But the problem is we've taken our eyes off God. We have forgotten his image and lost focus on him. And as a result, we have responded to the abundance of God with nothing more than an abundance of sin. And so, as we heard in week two, God has a plan. And that which he abundantly created and we more abundantly spoiled, he yet more abundantly redeems in Jesus. The great ninth century hymn, Vini Creator Spiritus, puts it this way. God anoints and cheers our soiled face with the abundance of his grace. The band Mumford and Sons repeats the theme. They have improved the tune in my view, but the sentiment is the same. Can you kneel before the king and say, I'm clean, I'm clean, a white blank page? Can you start afresh? Are you a new creation? Do you have a new start? That is what this is all about. And even that does not say enough about the work of Christ. Because on the cross, his, his work is not merely expiatory. That is, it doesn't just wipe away or clean away the stain of our sin. It is also propitiatory. That is, it takes it on and takes it away. And it is substitutionary as well. An exchange takes place on the cross. A king's ransom is raised for a mere serf, and a princely sum is paid to redeem a mere slave. Always with the money language in Scripture. As the Bible seeks to construct a great lexicon for us of, of the most extreme money words it can find to try and hint and no more than hint at the incalculable scale of the cost of the cross of Christ. Always trying to put it into human terms. And it only hints at what Jesus did. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. With God, there's always more. That's the point. And that which God abundantly creates and abundantly redeems, he also abundantly blesses. There's always more with God. And with this in mind, abundant creation, abundant redemption, abundant blessing, we have one question that we've been asking for four weeks how then shall we respond? Do you join me, please, in opening your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and slash or page 1967. Uh, sorry, page 967. And that's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So this is Paul writing to Corinth with news from Macedonia, and it is all about how to respond. And just as I said last week, people are starting to speak well of us at Christ Church and our reputation for giving. I think what there is is a bit of positive gossip going on here, like an internet meme. 
Macedonia gives, be like Macedonia. It really is that simple. Now, Corinth was a pretty well-off church. It was uh, at a great land canal for trade and a port. There was a garrison town there for the Roman military. There were lots of wealthy benefactors in their church and fancy things going on, elaborate meals. Great speakers would come in to kind of speak in the street. And there were these kind of uh, isthmus games, they were called, like the Olympics that would be there every couple of years. This was the place to be. It was like the, you know, the Indy 500 and the Super Bowl uh, wrapped up with Wall Street, if you can imagine such a thing. It was well off. So if Paul is writing to Corinth and the church in Corinth, Corinthians, with news from Macedonia and the church is in Macedonia, telling Corinth to be like Macedonia, well, Macedonia must be awesome, right? It must be absolutely loaded. No, it's not. Because giving is not a function of wealth. Giving is a function of a focus on God. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Lots to unpack. The first thing I want you to notice is this word abundance. And then notice eight words later, which you won't notice if you're not looking at it, but eight words later, you see this word overflowed. And in the original language, it's the same word. Abundance and overflow. Hence the title and the subtitle and the graphic on the front cover of the bulletin for this series. It really reads in the original language, the overflow of joy overflowed in wealth. Or, if we're making up words, their abundance of joy abundant in wealth. Even though they are, in objective terms, poor. And not just poor but extremely poor, and not just extremely poor, but also afflicted. Now, we've looked at this word, afflicted, before. It is derived from the olive press, a barrel with a screw-down lid. That's where the word comes from. And as the lid was screwed down on the olives and the pressure built up and the lid went down, it would squeeze out all of the olive oil that they needed to produce. That's where the word comes from. It's to do with the pressure and the pressing down and the weight of the olive press. And they are, in the same way, feeling under pressure. They're feeling trapped in the barrel. They're feeling squeezed out with uh, nothing left. They're feeling under pressure and trapped and squeezed. And not only that, but they're in poverty. And poverty is a terrible word. It, it literally means destitute of abundance. It means unabundant or disabundant or deabundant is what it means. And to add some extra depth to this word, it says that the condition was extreme. And that's another liquid term, another image of liquid taken from the deepness of the ocean this time to reveal to us the depth of the problem that they have. In, in modern idiom, we would say, financially speaking, they're underwater. They're out of their depth. They're in deep trouble. It's the same sort of idea. They're in deep trouble. They're out of their depth. They're feeling squeezed out. There's nothing left. They're feeling trapped. They're feeling under pressure. They have no abundance, and there's nowhere to go. And yet, they gave. They gave. Why did they give? And how did they give if they were in such a mess? 
Well, because giving is never a function of wealth, it is always a function of a focus on God. That's how they managed to give. And so it says here, they gave according to their means. As I can testify, you must have seen it. And beyond their means. This is a phrase that Paul's listeners would immediately recognize. If I said to you, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, what would I be thinking of? A marriage. This phrase, according to your means, conjures up the exact same image. It takes them to the same place. In a marriage contract or a marriage service, the groom would promise to look after his spouse according to his means. It's a piece of boilerplate language that they would all know well. And interestingly, the correlating phrase, the antithesis beyond their means comes from the opposite place. This was a phrase that was found in divorce settlement papers at the time, where a husband complained that he'd given too much. Going to get rid of her now. She's got too many expectations. That's what he would say. There's no such complaint in Macedonia. In fact, they beg, verse 4, to be able to give even more. This is like a young couple. You know that stage that you're at Uh, as a young couple where you're getting together and maybe you're planning on spending the rest of your life together and you start to buy presents for each other and you tend to to buy presents that are somewhat commensurate with your level of income but, but maybe even push the boundaries just a little bit. Maybe you found yourself in that stage buying something that was a bit more than you could really afford. You buy an engagement ring and, and it's a little bit more than you have the money for. Why? Because you're 25 years old and you're thinking, when I'm 45, I'm going to be earning more money and I'm going to look at this pathetic little boink of a diamond and I'm going to be embarrassed. And I'm in for the long haul, so I'm going to stretch. I'm going to give according to my means and I say beyond my means because I love her or she loves me. We give to the one that we love. We give beyond our means because we love them. We, we give so much because we're committed and we're in for the long haul. And this church, in the same way as it looks at its father, as it looks to God, it, it responds out of love, it responds out of commitment, and it gives according to its means gladly and begs to be able to give even beyond its means because it is committed to him. And giving is not a function of wealth. It is a function of a focus on God. And in my experience, often it is the poorest who give the most. My friend Azariah, our friend, is a minister in London, and in May he'd been leading a youth conference and in his cool youth conference clothing. And on the way home, at uh, the train station, his bank card was declined. The computer system of HSBC collapsed. And uh, he went through his wallet and he had some cash, but he realized that he was £2.60 short for the train fare home. And if you're uncertain what £2.60 pence means, that should be the equivalent of four or five bucks, but due to the unique way that the British nation is governed right now at the current rate of exchange, I think it's about 15 cents. Good time to visit, though. (laughs) What would you do if you needed to get home and you were short of two quid and 60p? 
Well, uh, he, he said that there was a church choir on the station concourse singing and collecting for the church. So he approached them and he said, hey, I'm clergy. I'm on my way back from a conference. Told them the story about his card, showed it to them, explained the problem, asked for some help, and they said no. <laughs> We're collecting for our church. Go away, they said. Lovely. He said he tried someone else. And the guy said with a smile, responded immediately with a smile. He said, I'm not going to give you money, but I can give you something even better. And he handed him a Christian pamphlet instead. (laughs) Useless! Azariah has three advanced degrees in theology. The last thing he needed was a Christian pamphlet. Now, I can explain this uh, unabundance to you. It's a well-known scam. Someone comes up to you at a train station, asks for a weirdly specific sum, shows you some coins that they already has, uh, have, and they tell a sort of cock story just like this one. I-, I must have heard a version of this story maybe 50 times in my commuting career. So it's no surprise that Azariah was turned down by everyone. Ah, here we go again. Rudest of all the responses were those of the rich. The apparently well-off were the rudest of all. And one lady told him that he should be ashamed and he should get a job. And he said, I do have a job. I'm a minister in the Church of England. She said, no, you're not. Your only job is begging. What a, just a gutting thing to hear. Though in a sense, I suppose she was right, but that's not the point. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, <laughs> okay, no more. Uh, in despair, he walked around the streets. He had his cell phone. He was trying to figure out who to call, but he didn't really think what to do all the way out in nowhere. And he said, at this very moment, two ladies came lurching out of McDonald's, and he said they were evidently not very well off, and they were even more evidently drunk. And so, and so in desperation, he asked them, told his story, asked for two quid. And uh, he said, without even thinking, one of them dipped into her bag and immediately handed him a fiver, a five-pound note. And he said, no, I'm a priest. Let me tell you the story. I only need half of that. And she said, wait, wait, wait. You keep it, darling. You clearly need it more than I do. (laughs) And her parting shot was this. I really hope you get your life back together. (laughs) Azariah said, and this is a quote from uh, his internet post and his blog, he said, I don't think for a minute that she believed me, but she believed in me. Giving is never a function of wealth. We give out of love. We give out of charity. We give out of compassion. We give out of our hearts. We don't give out of money. And in verse 5, it says of that very poor church, squeezed and underwater in Macedonia, verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Giving is a function of a focus on God. He was their priority, and that means that knowing his abundance and knowing their redemption and seeing his blessing, they were able to beg to be abundant like their heavenly father. They wanted to be like him because they were in love and they were in for the long haul and they believed in him. Back to Corinth. That's Macedonia now for Corinth. Not a bad church, 
It did have some bad things going on because it's a church, and all churches do. But in verse 7, their apostle Paul says, well done, you guys. I love you. I'm really proud. He says, you excel in everything. Awesome. And then he lists some things. For example, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness. Corinth is a fun place, and the Corinthian church is a fun church. It is unusually blessed in many, many ways. The longest of the Bible's lists of spiritual gifts is written to the church in Corinth. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a vibrant church. It's a rich church. It's a fun church. It's a spiritually blessed church in a happening town. And above all of those things, it is rich. And so, Paul says, if you're going to excel in all of these great things, verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace also, giving. Can anyone guess what the word excel really means in the original language? I'll give you a clue. (laughs) It's the same word, abundance. It's the same word again, abund. Four times. In this tiny passage, the same word is repeated. It's hidden and disguised in the English due to the way that it has to be translated to make sense in our language, but very clear in the original Greek. Verse 2 says, that abundance of joy abundant in wealth. Verse 7 says, as you abund in everything, see that you abund in this act of grace also. Overflow. Or they loved their speeches in Corinth. They loved to get witty speakers to come in and tickle their ears. And so Paul gives them a bit of rhetoric, a classical rhetorical device, uh, a sort of how much more question. If they can give this much from their poverty, how much more can you give from your wealth? It is a rhetorical device. And it's a clear question. It's quite clear indeed. And because... A direct command like this one, you need to give more, can be so difficult to preach and so much more difficult to receive. Paul gives to this church in Corinth two gentle caveats right now, and and I give them to you as well. Verse 7, only because I love you do I say what I say next. And verse 8, it is not a command. Christian giving can never be extracted. It must always overflow. So this is not a command. By the way, he says that because grammatically it is a command. Uh, So that's why he says it's not a command, in case they're feeling extracted. But as he says this next thing, it might terrify you, and it should terrify you. Listen carefully. The nature of your giving is the single most revealing thing about the nature of of your faith. Indeed, your Christian giving proves, verse 8, if your faith is even genuine. And this word genuine is a word to do with the legitimacy of one's birth. The way we use our money functions as a sort of spiritual paternity test. It proves if we really are descended from our heavenly Father, or if instead we've been sired by someone else unknown. And if you don't behave like your heavenly Father, 
maybe you are mistaken about who your father really is. So as we examine the way we use our money in this series, perhaps as we really go to work on this subject, we will find out and be terrified to find out that we really think our father is our home or our car or our club. Or perhaps we find out in this season that our father is a sport or some technology. Perhaps it's our child's education. Perhaps, I don't know, it's the cat's home. I don't know. We call our schools our alma mater, our nourishing mother. It's blasphemy. If that is what we think has created and redeemed and blessed and nourished us, good luck on your deathbed. Those fathers and those mothers will not care for you when you die. They don't abundantly provide for you now in any way. And in fact, if you look through your inbox, you'll find that you're providing for them. Who is your father? Have you tithed to Verizon and Audi and, you know, some mortgage company and some institution of some kind? Or have you tithed to God? And in the, uh, the days of cell phone banking apps, you can answer this question oh so easily. You can just take out your cell phone and in two clicks and a thumbprint ID, find out who your father is. I get paid on the, the 30th of the month. Let's see what goes out on the 1st. Oh, this, 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 this. Where is God on that list? Maybe you find out with one thumbprint that you have five fathers and none of them is heavenly. Many of us give according to our means and even beyond our means to things that are not God. We have given more to something less. It's a rhetorical device and it's terrifying. My dad, my, my actual biological father, taught me about God. And I told you a couple of weeks ago the bog sneaker story and my friend Colin who lost the shoe. I've got a hundred stories like this and, and maybe I'll share them with you. Uh, not all of them are good. I'll share some bad ones with you as well sometimes. Uh, but uh, I watched my dad do abundant stuff all through my childhood. We uh, didn't have very much money and we went back to our my childhood home a couple of years ago and I was actually appalled to find out how horrible it was. I thought it was nice. I didn't know we were poor, but we were. And I watched my dad during the recession when he'd lost his business go and work for other people's businesses for free so that theirs didn't go under. Work for a Christian bookshop, work for a realtor, just went and worked for months for free to help out people in the church in the recession. I watched him drive people around when he was off work, taking them to hospital or bringing people in for meals when they didn't have anything. And I remember him giving a wad of cash, a thousand pounds, and pushing it through someone's door anonymously at night. A thousand pounds to a kid in a recession, you know, like that. Can you imagine what it looked like and how it seared into my mind? During my childhood, a member of our family stole from my dad. They owned a flat together, an apartment, and systematically she defrauded my dad over many, many years out of thousands. And my granddad, dad's dad, found out about the fraud. He uncovered it, got the books, went through it, found the fraud, 
And he was so shocked and so distressed that I believe that was the thing that caused his heart attack that month. And he died in grief at this theft. My dad's dad. And I can remember vividly as a child, the sort of story went around the family and I got the rudiments of it, being in my room. And at the bottom of the stairs was the telephone in the hall. And I heard dad on the phone and I sneaked out of my room to the top of the stairs to listen in to this conversation. And it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. It was my dad calling the person who had stolen from him. And he said, I know what you did. And I'm calling to tell you that I forgive you. And I know, he said, that you can't pay it back. So I just want you to give me a symbolic amount, just as a sign of where your heart is. That's what he said to her. And then he said this, he said, I love you. And then he said, I know this is extremely difficult for you, but I'm still there for you. Family matters more. And then he used her childhood nickname just so she knew that he still loved her. All of that, you know, he approached her in her sin to make it up to her in her sin. All he asked was that she volunteer a symbolic sum as an indication of her heart and where it was. And of course, we know that his heart was already there. Even though we were poor, I have an abundant dad. He is a human dad, though, and he's, he's not perfect. He's not even close to perfect. Uh, he's a bit more perfect than me, but he's still a mess. And uh, it, uh, he, it turns out that my dad had been married before, and uh, that previous marriage, before he met my mum, ended very badly, and my dad admits to some serious fault in the breakdown of that marriage. Grossly exaggerated, though it was in court, at fault he certainly was, and from that previous marriage, my dad has a daughter... Uh, my half-sister. And growing up, half of everything that dad made went to my half-sister, as well it should, even though she wouldn't see him because she'd heard these stories and she wouldn't see him. And when the money dried up, when she turned 18, they lost contact until Facebook came along and my dad found her on Facebook and dad wrote to her to try and reach out once more. Always reaching out is my dad. And she wrote back a couple of weeks later in the mail a typed letter. And it began with these words, Dear Sir, I don't want to know about you. You know, arm's length communication. She had been deceived about her father. She didn't know the stories that I know, and I have a hundred of them. She didn't know his heart. She hadn't sneaked in and listened in to what he was saying and doing. She had been made in his image. She had been born legitimately, his firstborn, his daughter in a marriage. But she preferred to live alone, preferred to live illegitimately. I don't want to be a church that lives like that in respect of our Heavenly Father. I don't want to be a church that responds to our Father in that arm's length, dear sir, rudimentary, cold, communicatory way. If you have been giving abundantly to the wrong Father, church, I call you to repent this very day, to make a theological decision, not a financial one, a theological one, to commit to the principle of giving to your heavenly Father. 
And if you have been giving abundantly to the wrong father, the good news is that your true father still wants to know you, is still calling, is still using childhood nicknames for you, is still intimately in love with you and and still giving all that he has for you. God's creation, God's redemption, God's blessing. How then shall we respond? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can speak to you as such. Not dear sir, but dear dad. Thank you that we dare approach you with such familiarity because of where you are already. Bless us as we wrestle with the theological question of how to respond. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As part of our response, I invite you please to stand with me and to affirm our faith in the words of the Creed, saying together, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Let's be seated for our prayers. Lord our God, we we do pray for the world over and especially those corners of the world where there is real poverty and suffering and especially those victims of the recent tsunami this weekend. Pray for the people of Indonesia and their rebuilding as they cope. Heavenly Father, we pray for our own country. We pray for all those who bear the authority of government especially Donald, our president, and Thomas, our governor. We pray for all those involved in public life, especially at the moment in this most public of ways. We pray that you'd be with all those in the process in the Senate. And Lord God, we pray for our local spiritual overseer, Bishop Jim. We thank you for his gift of preaching and his pastoral gifts to those of us who work for churches in his diocese. And we pray for him, for his energy and for his joy and for his encouragement this week. And Father, we pray for those amongst us who are suffering in any way. 
we name them aloud or quietly in our hearts. We especially name before you the Russell family and Tracy in particular, that you would sustain her through her course of chemotherapy and grant to her a full recovery and healing. In the name of Jesus, amen.